For the better part of recorded history, horses have played a key role in human civilization. Since the earliest of times, they've been used for agricultural work and warfare. And in the 19th century, they were just about the only means of transport in cities. But with hundreds of thousands of horses trotting along, pulling caps, carts, and wagons, came an unbelievable amount of horse manure. In 1894, the Great Manure Crisis was born, when the Times of London predicted that in 50 years, every street in the city would be buried under nine feet of manure. To give you an idea of the unbearable stench and sight that greeted city dwellers daily, picture that a normal horse carriage required two horses plus a reserve to work. A horse-drawn tram in New York required a team of eight horses. And in London, double-decker buses required a dozen. Not only was all the manure produced by these animals left to rot on the street, but there were also hundreds of decomposing coarse corpses scattered around the city. By 1912, though, New York had more motor cars than horses, and the Great Manure Crisis was averted. And yet, the invention of the car was not welcomed with as much enthusiasm as you'd expect. People worried how quickly a machine was able to replace an animal that had played such a vital role in the economy for so many centuries. For many, it foreshadowed a world where humans themselves would be replaced by machines. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a new podcast brought to you by the PICTA Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. Today, we investigate the future of work, asking, will the development of artificial intelligence and automation replace even the most creative of jobs? Or will machines be complementary to their human counterparts, making work better and even more efficient? How would a world without work look like? Would we lose our purpose or find new and more exciting ways to live? Here to help us imagine this future are Dr. Daniel Susskind, fellow in economics at Balliol College, Oxford University, and author of the best-selling book, A World Without Work. We're also joined by Sinead Bavel, futurist, model, and the founder and CEO of WAY, an organization that prepares youth for a future with advanced technologists. And finally, we welcome Anjali Bastian Pillai, a senior product specialist at Big Asset Management, focusing on robotics, securities, and digital strategies. Daniel, I'd like to start with you first. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to be interested in the future of work? You've said you draw a lot of inspiration from your father. That's right, yes, and a pleasure to be with you. That's right, I co-authored a, a book in 2015 called The Future of the Professions, which I, I wrote, as, as you hinted, with my, my dad. His, his background was, in fact, in artificial intelligence. He wrote his doctorate on artificial intelligence and the law back in the 1980s, and we joined forces in, in writing to write a book, The Future of the Professions, looking at how technology and artificial intelligence were affecting the work of white-collar workers. So not just lawyers, but also doctors and teachers and accountants and 
uh, bankers and, and so on. Um, but of course, the impact that technology is having on work is not just a white collar story. It's affecting the entire labor market. And it's not just about work either. It's also about its impact on society, about how we all live together. And my most recent book, A World Without Work, which I published earlier in the year, was looking at these broader questions. You know, every day we hear stories of systems and machines that are taking on tasks we thought, you know, until recently only human beings alone could ever do. Uh, Making medical diagnoses, uh, drafting legal contracts, designing beautiful buildings, uh, writing news reports. What does all of this mean for the vast majority of us for whom our job is our main source of income? And I don't think we're taking seriously enough the threat of a world where there's not enough work for people to do because of these remarkable technological changes that are taking place. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying in the book that there's going to be some big, sudden technological bang in the next few years after which lots of people wake up and find themselves suddenly without a job. You know, I just don't think that's going to happen. Work is going to remain for some time to come. But what I do think is likely is that as we move through the 21st century, more and more people will find themselves unable to make the sorts of economic contributions to society that they might have hoped or expected to make in the 20th century. And I think that is a a fundamental challenge to how we all live together. But hasn't technology always eradicated old jobs and created new ones? Why won't today technologies continue this process? What, if anything, is different in today's industrial revolution than those in the 18th or 19th centuries? Right. And that has to be the starting point for any conversation about automation, which is that ever since modern economic growth began 300 years ago, people have worried about the machines of the day taking, destroying jobs. And yet time and time again, those worries have been, you know, turned out to be misplaced. There's always been enough work for people to do. And that's the starting point for my book. You know, you have to begin there and understand, try and make sense of, well, why might this time be different? The short answer to that question is, is just these systems and machines are just relentlessly becoming more capable. The tasks and activities we thought were out of their reach are no longer. The deeper answer is that when you look at the various economic forces that have tended to help workers in the past rather than harm them, I think there are compelling reasons to think that because of these technological changes that are taking place, that those economic forces might be weaker now than they were in the past. So something has changed. This time is different. For you, what social policies might mitigate the harms of a workless world? Do much-hyped ideas like, for example, universal basic income have your support? Do they go far enough? I think we've got to be very clear about what the challenges are that we face in a world with less work. And I think there are three fundamental challenges. One is the challenge of inequality. How do we share our prosperity in society when our traditional way of doing so, paying people for the work that they do, is far less effective than it was in the past? And the answer I, I suggest in the book is that if the labor market can't share out income in society as effectively as it might have done, because some people can't find work, then the, the only really alternative plausible mechanism is for the state to do it. 
And again, you know, if, if we think about the economic challenge that we face during this pandemic, it's very, very similar. How do we share out prosperity when our traditional way of doing so, paying people for the work that they do, isn't effective? You know, because so many people can't find work at the moment. Well, we've seen the state step forward and take on a far larger role uh, than many people thought the, the state could feasibly, plausibly take on. But the challenge of a world with less work isn't just an economic challenge. I think there's also two other challenges. One is the challenge of power. What do we do about the power of large technology companies who are responsible for developing these technologies in the first place? In, in the 20th century, our main concern was with the economic power of large corporations. But the argument I make in the book is that in the 21st century, we're going to be far more worried about their political power, uh, about the impact they have on how we live together in society. So Facebook is a good example of this. People are a little worried about excessive profits and their, um, you know, the, the, the economic distortions that Facebook might involve. But I think people are far more concerned about their political power, that, for instance, Russia was able to use the platform to influence the US presidential election in 2016. So I think that's another challenge, this challenge of how do we constrain the political power of large technology companies? And then the third challenge, again, which I don't think has much to do with economics at all, is the challenge of meaning and purpose. You know, the, the challenge of technology isn't just that it's going to hollow out the labor market, but if it does, it's also going to hollow out the sense of meaning and purpose that many people have in their lives as well. If you think we're moving towards a world with less work, then we should be thinking less about the future of work and more about the future of leisure. At the start of the Industrial Revolution in the early 19th century, it is said that an English weaver named Ned Ludd smashed two knitting frames in a fit of rage. There's no confirmation that the story is true, but the rumor spread across the country and launched a labor movement led by skilled craftsmen who were being displaced by machines. During this period, British weavers and textile workers destroyed hundreds of mechanized looms and knitting frames, all the while calling themselves Luddites, after their mythical leader, Ned Ludd. The uprising against this new way of working went so far that the British government had to make machine-breaking punishable by death. Today, we still call technophobes Luddites. Sinead, it sounds like we're going to have to be very open and adaptable in developing new skills in this possible future. Can you please tell us about how you stumbled on futurism and tech? Because your background is very unique. Yeah, yes, I um, would agree. I don't really have the, the most conventional background. I grew up very academic, um, similar to, I think, most of the people on this podcast right now, studying finance, chemistry, did an MBA um, and then focused on becoming a management consultant, not really defining success for myself, but um, aspiring to be that. And when I got there, it didn't really feel right. I wasn't inspired by the work that I was doing and simultaneously was presented with a job uh, in the world of fashion. So leaving my old academic world um, with a focus on strategy and you know, the intersection of business technology and stepping into this new world of fashion, I immediately noticed the information gap between the conversations and the research I was doing around technology in the future 
in this new world. And then it became very apparent to me that most of the information around technology, the future of work, isn't digestible by the average person uh, that doesn't have a background studying it for years and years. And that's a, a ginormous problem when you think about the way in which we're going, our work and life is going to be disrupted by these advanced technologies. Um, so then that became my new mission, kind of bridging this information gap between non-text experts and you know, the rest of the world and preparing people for a future of work and life with advanced technologies in a way that they can understand. Yeah. And it seems like you have a much more optimistic view than, <laughs> than Daniel does. We've just heard all of his reasons for believing that new jobs won't be created. Are you more confident in the creation of jobs in the future? Um, and I would say that I don't think Daniel's view is, is pessimistic. I think that there are a lot of great layers to that and inspiring um, layers within a life that maybe doesn't involve such intense work. In the next 10 years, I do think technology will kind of repeat the story it always has and, and create new opportunities that we just can't imagine. I do think the majority of the jobs of the of the next decade or even two haven't been invented yet. And because of these incredible new innovations around deep learning, where we're examining problems through a lens that humans just aren't capable of doing and technology can do that, we're going to uncover a lot of new problems that we didn't even know existed and therefore create more opportunities to solve those problems. I think work is going to definitely look very different over the next decade to two decades, but I do think opportunities will exist. Um, how well we're able to reach up and grab those opportunities will depend on how the investment in preparing workers, um, shifting us to more of a, a learning economy um, versus you know, just a knowledge-based economy, how universities are all designed today. I do agree that the story of society of you know, depending and circulating around work will be different. It won't be a labor-based society the way it is today because technology will be able to do all of the jobs that we can visualize today. However, with those same advancements, brings about an entire new world of possibility that we just can't imagine yet. So sure, in 40 years, if every job on the planet right now you know, will likely be done by some form of a machine, we'll also adapt with those machines. So for example, brain-computer interfaces will allow humans to keep up with the advances in artificial intelligence. So as these machines possess these capabilities, so too will we. You've been able to change your job countless times in, as you say, business consultancy, fashion, data, tech, futurism. How did you develop this ability to adapt as the world continues changing at this rate? I'm sure people will need to learn how to do this in this lifetime. Yeah, and that's actually a great question. For me, it's about understanding and uncovering the skills that I have and repositioning them to a lane that I either choose to be present in or that I think I can solve a problem in. And so I think the story of the new future of work, it will be more of a skills-based, you know, continuing to learn-based economy. And so when you measure it that way, as opposed to 
the label that you get when you graduate from university, you realize that you actually are a lot more fluid uh, than your degree or your current job title um, makes you feel. And so that's kind of the approach I've taken to all of my, my career pivots. I, you know, throw out the title, throw out what I, you know, what my undergraduate degree says, and I extract the skills of what I know how to do. And then I apply them into a new lane. And where I differentiate from other people that have existed in that lane, I use that as a competitive advantage. Um, and that's kind of just, you know, the preliminary theories of business and economics and comp- competition. Um, but I think it really applies in, in our career path, if we can view it that way. So in your opinion, how can policymakers ensure that we get the optimistic future you're looking forward to and not a dystopia? Um, I think we need to have more people working on the question, what type of society do we want to create? What type of society do we want to have in a world of super intelligence? What do we want to make possible? There needs to be more people, we need to incentivize more people that understand this type of technology to work on the government side of policy. Um, and that starts with grants and being more con- connecting government with the universities more like they used to do you know, after the war and the technologies that were built um, pre-Cold War were based on the relationships between researchers, schools, and government. Um, and we've kind of lost that. So I think policy to build these technologies in a way that's more optimistic involves a lot more communication. And, you know, it obviously is going to question the models that we have around policy and governance at large. You know, the story of democracy has been, or liberal democracy has been what's happened over the past 200 years, and that's worked really well. But what we're realizing now is that we are so interconnected. We exist, you, you know, even just this virus, right? We've seen with COVID-19, something that affects somebody across the world in a market impacts all of us greatly. So policy, it probably won't work if it's just country-based and if it's just a national um, perspective. It has to be something that's more global. And that challenges the current way we've built our countries and our views and our ideologies. But I think if we really want to guarantee that these technologies are going to work for everyone. Everybody needs to be a part of that conversation. Can I, can I just, uh, just uh, it's very interesting, a uh, couple of observations that just before, just be quite interested just to respond to a few of them. I mean, yeah, please. <laughs> one is uh, the idea of optimism. And, and it's worth saying that, that my book, A World Without Work, is fundamentally an optimistic book. Uh, and in a sense, the reason is simple, which is that, in the 21st century, technology, you know, for most of human history, one economic problem has dominated, one economic problem, which is that if we think of the economy as a pie, the fundamental challenge has been, how do we make the pie large enough for everyone to live on? That's been the problem that has plagued our ancestors for centuries. So if you go back to the turn of the first century AD, and take the global economic pie and slice it up into equal slices for everyone in the world, most people would get a few hundred of today's dollars. Almost everyone lived on or around the poverty line. Uh, And if you were to roll forward a thousand years, then roughly the same will be true again. But in the last few hundred years, those economic pies have exploded in size. Global GDP per head today, the value of those individual slices of the economic pie 
is already about $11,000. In 35 years, it will be double that. In 35 years, it'll be double that again. Technological progress, you know, we, we've come very close to solving that fundamental economic problem. And so in a, in a strange way, technological unemployment, I see as a symptom of that success. You know, technology is going to solve one problem, which is how do we make the pie large enough for everyone to live on? But it's going to replace it with these three others. Uh, the challenges of inequality that I mentioned, you know, how do we slice up that pie when we can't necessarily rely upon the world of work? Uh, the second issue of political power of large technology companies. And third, these issues of meaning and purpose. But it just seems to me that, in, you know, in the end, those three problems are far better problems to have than the one that, you know, plagued our ancestors, as I said, for centuries, which was, you know, how to make the pie large enough in the first place. And, and, and that is why I, I'm fundamentally optimistic. I'm also optimistic in the sense that I, I think in the medium term, our challenge is not that there won't be enough jobs for people to do. Our challenge is that there will be jobs for people to do, but primarily, I worry that people might not have the skills and capabilities to do those jobs. And so really, the challenge I see for the next five to 10 years isn't a challenge of, uh, it doesn't involve things like universal basic income, at least if we're thinking about automation, but instead it's about education. Uh, and, and this is very much in line with the conversation that I just heard. The, the main thing we should be thinking about is how can we prepare people so that they have the skills and capabilities to do the sorts of jobs that have to be done. Yeah, I, I would actually very much agree with that, that it's, it's this medium term, this kind of 10 to 15 year lens that I think is going to be the most, not the most disruptive because who knows what's going to happen past that, but it's technology in its advanced sense is going to disrupt how we see the workforce today, but these the jobs that exist today are still going to be how most things are done. And so it will be that skills gap that becomes very challenging um, for society and how much does government step in and how much foresight do they have in seeing that and supporting that shift in a way that doesn't leave anyone behind and in a way that doesn't create what you see in this pandemic where, where the things that are needed aren't enough or the things that are needed people don't have the skills to go do. Um, so I do think, yeah, in this next 10 to 15 years, that's where there could be a lot of friction. Anjali, as a senior product specialist at Big Asset Management, focusing on digitalization and automation, you must have a different perspective on all of this. I think um, I don't necessarily disagree. There's definitely a lot of anxious uh, narrative around, um, I guess, a, a workless uh, world. But I think when it comes to all these sort of digital tech, the kind of AI, uh, whether we look at IoT, 5G, cloud, blockchain, etc. One thing I think that's underestimated is just the whole digitally native um, kind of population. So if you take sort of what we call the hashtag generation, so if we take Generation Z, it's about 26% of the population, and you take the younger millennials, you have a kind of one-third of the population that's truly digitally native, and um, they use digital in a very transformational way. So the whole network economy obviously has massive scalability for all businesses and I think through digital networks a lot of people worldwide get access to a lot of not even uh, uh, data but just information and education so you do see a sort of democratization in a certain way a 
especially when it comes to language barriers. And um, I think it's it, we shouldn't underestimate the kind of younger generations that are truly digital native and will go and find uh, if you want the platform to learn or the courses to take to be able to reskill themselves. But where does our definition of hard work even come from? In 1897, German sociologist Max Weber suffered a nervous breakdown questioning the meaning of work and the way the world came to be systematically ordered. By 1904, he had recovered enough to publish a book arguing that Protestant groups, particularly Calvinists, developed the work ethic we see today. Protestants believed that worldly success brings eternal salvation. This encouraged a religious duty that prioritized order and the proper use of individual resources. As a consequence, the world saw a rise in enterprises engaging in trade and investment, jumpstarting modern capitalism. So Anjali, can you tell us what drew you into the field of digitalization and automation? Has it always been your passion? Before I joined Pictet, I was uh, working for a fund based in the in San Francisco uh, with a uh, focus very much on the fintech area, the fintech space. Um, with a name, we were funding actually companies like Prosper, Lending Club, and Upstart, and those platforms were located in the Bay Area. So I had this exposure to the tech world already uh, from Silicon Valley, but as well as uh, VC funds as well around that area. And then obviously, fast forward to today, I'm now covering three of the large tech fund, largest tech funds in uh, uh, in thematics. Uh, one of them is digital, which is focused on web-based businesses. Uh, the second one is robotics, which is focused on automation, uh, AI, and robotics. And then the third one is security, which also has quite a bit of tech involved with uh, the investments that we do in cybersecurity. So all three funds are very much focused on thematic long-term investing. Um, and that's why I think automation is a very big driver for all three funds and a huge growth factor. And fr from your work, how do you see automation changing the job space in the world? We're taking a slightly positive view on this, as in uh, we think automation also creates jobs, but it's different jobs and a different skill set that's required. Um, and that will definitely uh, change the way people look at these 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 jobs of um uh, of the past, especially in low cost uh, locations, i.e. China. Um, I think in terms of reskilling, uh, we think that companies who go through the automation process, for example, uh, in Europe or in the US, will have a mix of, uh, of reskilling that's either provided directly from the company, also paid by, by governments. And this could apply to either people who've been uh, made redundant and you're trying to keep them or educating uh, people who, um, for example, are in the middle of their careers. So um, there is some systems that we're seeing emerge and that are coming into play. Do you see any companies in your work, specific companies you can, you can give us now, that are already adapting or that they're ahead of the curve in automation? So yes, we do see uh, quite a few in all three of my funds. I think you know, in terms of business process automation, uh, we've seen a lot and, and even pre-COVID, it's just COVID-19 accelerates the trends, obviously, but business process automations are um, basically software companies that can really accelerate um, the way you analyze and look at data. Uh, it can be related to how you even map or plan a, a factory floor, uh, taking into account all this data available from production to delivery. And so if you have less demands from certain areas or regions because of COVID-19, they can just remap the whole uh, factory flow and adapt to that change. 
Uh, we've got lots of other companies in the business process automation space, um, which deals more with processing very um, heavy data, but at the same time, they make predictions. So it's proper AI behind it. What about the data Security Fund? Have you seen an increase in cybersecurity? Has that been an shaping investing trends yes absolutely so cybersecurity obviously has been a, a key theme for us in the security fund especially with covid19 but um, i think again those trends have been accelerated so you have companies that used to or had to sort of if you want safeguard with a firewall uh, one building now you have staff working all over from their houses so you, you if you have 4000 people in a company you pretty much have to ensure or assure the the security or the cybersecurity of of 4,000 different uh, buildings as opposed to the, the main one where everybody used to work at the same time. So that creates a lot of new technologies and, and, and you can see clearly that it's not just your work from home station, right? It's uh, Wi-Fi, it's working from, because you're no longer using the company uh, uh, 4G, you're actually also using uh, emails and your iPhone. And so all those different, if you want, entities being used at the same time to work and all that flexibility obviously drags in a high level of cybersecurity threats. Um, so a huge demand for those companies, which uh, obviously have to progress very fast with uh, the demand of customers. Um, but clearly that is a massive trend uh, and it's not going away. It's only going to increase um, just the Internet of Things, the um, 5G, uh, the cloud, all these um, are, are what we use daily uh, when working from home. And so that definitely a, a strong, strong uh, push and a strong demand for, for cybersecurity. Uh, this is for everyone, whoever wants to answer. If we reach this ultimate utopia where people are in complete sync with machines, do you think we will lose our purpose? Will everything become too easy? Sure. One of the arguments of my book is that you don't have to subscribe to views about things like super intelligence or artificial general intelligence or, you know, machines that are conscious or think like human beings to be faced with really significant challenges, challenges of inequality, challenges of power, and also these challenges of meaning and purpose. You know, you only need a few percentage points of people to be permanently unemployed to have real issues around how it is that you provide people meaning and a purpose in a world where work no longer sits at the center of their life. So I think these issues of meaning and purpose are, you know, for some people with us right now. And I think as we move through the 21st century, are going to become more and more salient, uh, though not perhaps for uh, necessarily the sorts of reasons that many people might traditionally worry about. I think if I could maybe add also, you can't outsource innovation to automation robots um, or, or any sort of uh, system. I think robots can't do that yet in terms of innovation. So I think you will have to have a sort of balance between human humans and robots. So as long as there's innovation, I don't think you you can have that that lack of balance between humans and robots. Yeah, I would say the story around purpose and identity hasn't changed too much. Humans want to belong. We want to feel like we belong to something. We want to feel like we contribute to something. And as you know, technology shows, we want to make sure that people see how we contribute to things, aka likes and follows and that. So I think purpose, identity in those in that frame can still transcend and, and evolve 
with advanced technologies by our side. I don't think if you define your purpose simply based on what the bottom of your email signature says, I think that you should start looking inward regardless. And I think what we do on the day-to-day will change how we do it, who we do it with, whether that's our brain and and an interface that connects us to the web. But the yearning to belong and and to contribute to something bigger than just you you in your life, I think can be a part of whatever story we choose to write with technology. It just you know it matters who's writing it and who's a part of you know who's part of the coding process. But I think purpose has evolved. The same the purpose is still defined quite similarly since the beginning of time, and it's just evolved with the new tools that humans have leveraged. Yeah, I agree. I would also say those tools will augment humanity, um, and I think it will make our jobs easier. If we have jobs. <laughs> if we have jobs. <laughs> Thanks to all our guests on this episode of Founding Conversation, Dr. Daniel Suskind, Sinead Bavel, and Anjali Bastian-Pillai. This series is brought to you by the Picta Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija-Razbetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.